Hello everyone, welcome to XYZ Podcast. I'm Gary. In fact, I was thinking how do I wanted to uh, do an opening for this coming guest. And I'm, I feel really lucky that I have a um, lecturer who later turned into um, my friend, I would say. Because, you know, tutor or lecturer is becoming like a role that being a student, I would say it's like very hard to engage. It's like the only dialogue we have is we are always talk about our advice or knowledge about assignments and don't really talk about more than that. Apart from being a lecturer, of course, he, he does a lot of things as well. So welcome to the show, Nicholas. How are you? Hey, hey, Gary. Good and well. Lockdown. <laughs> like any other people in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Today is the call that we've been we, we we are making now and right after the prime minister made the announcement yesterday so it's like another two weeks so yes. i wonder i wonder what have you been doing so far honestly i have not been doing anything i've been very unproductive um uh, uh, but i i i got back while i was traveling i was in the uk uh, mm. early this year and then i came back two days before the MCO. Right. right. Uh, so I was lucky, I guess, to mm. be back just when they announced it. So ever since then, you know, I, I haven't really been doing anything, but right. uh, but mostly also preparing for classes because the semester in Taylor started. They extended. They postponed the semester. So mm. It was started in but last week actually. Mm. Yeah, last week or the first week. Mm-hmm. Just just to give our audience uh, a little bit background of you. And you are currently working as a full-time or part-time lecturer? Part-time. I'm part-time, part-time. at Taylor. Mm-hmm. So before that, I, I was thinking that um, <coughs> being a lecturer in architecture industry, and of course, you, you must be um, adequate or qualified to be teaching as an academic tutor, for example. So I wonder how does architecture comes in your life journey, I would say. Uh, my background in architecture I actually didn't begin in architecture, mm. I have to say. Um, so I guess when I was very young, um, I was interested in drawing, in art, you know, painting. Mm. Mm. But uh, very young in in primary school, and and growing up, I guess the the stuff that I was playing with, maybe we have Legos, but I wasn't really interested or that into architecture. Uh, mm. So I didn't know what architecture was, I guess, back then. Mm. Um, but anyway, I think fast forward to high school, the last year of high school, mm. I remembered writing that I wanted to become an architect. Uh, I don't know why, I don't know how mm. that got into the, um, the the diary or whatever that we had to hand in you know, during school. Mm. But I, I guess it was perhaps uh, at that time, uh, KL was booming, uh, construction was booming, and mm. the Petronas Twin Towers was being built. Mm. So I guess watching it go up, you know, and they were airing it on, on TV, I guess, at that time, you know, uh, showing the progress. I guess that was kind of was the first thing that got me into, oh, okay, mm. what, what are they doing? You know, it's like in architecture, that, that seems like fun. But so I wrote that down, uh, mm. but my teacher sort of shot me down because mm. I was not in the science stream, so it was mm. too late for me to become an architect. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I was still sort of adamant I wanted to study architecture or something arts related, 
because yeah. uh, I was not interested in studying accounting or you know like what was the hot subject at that time was IT. Mm. So I didn't want to study that. And then after graduation, I guess the next best thing was I enrolled myself into an arts and design school. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a small school in KL. It's called the Center for Advanced Design. No longer in existence. Mm. But uh, but the time the school was actually affiliated with um, Parsons of New York. So the course was very similar to what they were doing in New York and coming from a very conservative education background. The, being in that school was sort of an eye-opener for me because uh, it was sort of like the first time you know, I was in touch with the American education system and I was uh, also being asked to express my own opinions. Mm. So that was uh, really uh, a sort of a great moment for me. Yeah. And and then uh, because it was an American-based program, you know, so the first year, you know, it's like foundation, but we studied everything from anything, and it ranged from humanities, uh, from literature to philosophy. So it was also a period where, you know, uh, I got to explore uh, other subjects, mm. uh, things that are beyond the arts program. Mm. So anyway, I spent about two and a half years there. Uh, because I wanted to, my plan was to enroll in their architecture, interior architecture program, because they had mm. one. But unfortunately, it was not uh, offered that year. Mm. So the next best thing that I was thinking, I could think of was, you know, taking up the visual communication major mm. instead, mm. Uh, which is similar to graphic design. Mm. So after my first year in, in the, in the major, in that major, I was basically hooked. Uh, I was very interested to what I was learning. Uh, typography became a subject that I was very excited about and I wanted to know more. So I decided to finish the program uh, and then transfer to the Cochrane College, mm-hmm. which is now under George Washington University mm-hmm. and in the US. And so finished my undergrad degree there. Mm-hmm. So that was 2011 mm-hmm. when I first arrived in Washington, D.C. So two years later, after that undergrad uh, degree, after I graduated, uh, I decided to apply for a master's in architecture. Mm. So that was when I, you know, I finished up my, my graphic design degree. I was, okay, let's just do this. Okay, we can, you know, jump in, jump back to what I wanted to study initially. Mm. Mm. So I enrolled myself in a school called the Boston Architectural College. Right. And... My decision in choosing that school was um, mainly because of their unconventional program. Because right. unlike a typical four years architecture program, it was a six to seven years program. Uh, right. The reason why is that long is because they included a two years working experience and it spread out throughout the course. Mm. So as a student enrolled in that school, you need to get a job at a firm. Mm. You've got to work full time and then you study full-time at night. So the main idea was to have this space where students can learn and then work from architecture firm uh, through sort of like an apprenticeship program, and mm. then you continue that program with classes at night. Mm. So it's not easy. I would say it was probably the toughest seven years of my life, mm. but I, I was really happy that um, I, I met a lot of great people, um, and they were able to give me... Uh, moral support and basically understood what I was going through. Mm. So, so that 
you know, so my journey took a long time, probably mm. 10 years, mm. to get into the architecture mm. program. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, thanks for the sharing throughout, I, I, I would say like probably huge part of your life. And uh, I think even though the, the whole process might taking a lot of time, but you are still looking very young because uh, being, <laughs> you know, you know, the first first time I saw you, I was like, I thought you are a new student, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so and then apparently after that, I saw like, oh, OK, how come this guy is just sitting along with other lecturers? I was like, OK. And then after that, I just realized, oh, you are actually one of the lecturers. <laughs> no, no. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, I'm turning the big four this year. <laughs> But but you did mention that um you you finished your um graphic design in two thousand eleven right? Uh, two thousand thirteen. Two thousand thirteen. Yeah. So yeah. at that point of time, is kind of young, and uh, you did mention about at that point of time, like uh the popular courses like IT. I wonder, I wonder how your, for example, your friends or family think about when you wanted to, you know, totally taking another shift into art and you study interior or you study graphic designs, for example, but you didn't pursue into the so-called science stream. So uh, I wonder what they think, yeah. Uh, I don't know if I told my friends. I guess no one knew what I wanted to do right? Um, because uh, I just decided to mm. sign out what I wanted to do. But, but whereas family goes... Uh, I guess they were okay. I was. I'm the youngest in my in my family, and uh, I guess they kind of approve. I mean, like, yeah. My my two sisters. I have two other sisters. Uh, one of them was a lawyer. She studied mm. law. Mm. I guess, uh, and then the other one uh, was is in in media and communication. Mm. But uh, I guess they felt like they had a lawyer, so they don't really need another uh, status oriented. Mm, uh, mm. position for me like, or like a doctor or whatnot so mm, mm. I I mean I guess I was lucky in a way that uh, I was able to choose the subject that I wanted to study mm, mm, mm. so yeah so I mean yeah but you started <laughs> off mentioned that you wanted to study about art or you know humanitarian art like or graphics things that rather I would say intangible I would say it's not like something you can build or you can make it into um, realistic things. I mean, of course, you can make it into prints or you can make it into like publications, for example. And I wonder how the attractions, for example, that from architecture that makes you think that, oh, you should from 2D shifting into 3D. Oh, the um, idea was it's not so straightforward what I learned um, mm. after going, uh, after taking graphic design and into um into architecture. Mm. Uh, I have been commented, I guess, in the first year, I have been commented uh, or, or criticized a lot mm. was that uh, I was not able to think of it in a three-dimensional um, mm. uh, way yet. So mm. that was a, a, a bit of a struggle. Uh, it took some time to to understand objects and, and spaces in terms of three-dimensional rather than a 2D perspective mm, because mm. what we really do in, in graphic design or in visual is only mainly 2D mm. uh, at that time. So there was definitely a struggle uh, getting to understand that. So mm. I wouldn't say I'm perfect yet, but, mm. uh, but apart from that, I guess I had a good... Coming in from 
you know, what I did in my undergrad, I guess I had a good basis of, of subjects that were not taught or um, introduced in the architecture was on the humanities uh, subject, on, mm. on, on philosophy mm. and also on, on literature. So my, my position back then was, you know, I had a good foundation. Uh, mm. I had a good uh, uh, introduction to, the, to analytical skills. Uh, mm. So, so that sort of actually helped me throughout mm. uh, the course uh, during my architecture year. Mm. Uh, it provided me uh, ideas and outlets to to take uh, subjects in in humanities and then putting it into conceptual ideas in an architecture. Mm. So 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 that that was I guess the one thing that I could actually blend between the two. Uh, Mm, subjects mm, together mm, mm, yeah it, it sort of reminds me of uh Peter Zumto's thinking architectures that i think it is architecture is a is, is in fact is all about majorly about art but it's just that when it comes to like concrete as in like um real thing concrete into something that you can touch or you can feel or into something physical then it will be called into architecture. So your your interest into humanitarian art, for example, that can be reflected in in my in my time. The uh, module that you uh, handling at that time for my class is food and culture. But before that, I was thinking to ask you how how's the environment to study in United States before? It's like how how do you spend your time over there for for so long? Uh, it's not all parties from what you heard on or what you see in the movies, <laughs> but I guess it also depends on which university you go. Uh, mm. It's it's different, of course, definitely mm. uh, between the two cultures. Uh, but uh, I think going in there, I didn't have uh, I didn't go with a group of friends. Mm. I, I went uh, to a school where no one knew me, mm. uh, and you know, once you're in in the U.S. Uh, I was basically willing to accept and trying to blend in and absorb as much as I could mm. because, you know, like what's the point of studying in a foreign land when you are, when you want to stick with, you know, the same group of people yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that you know back home. So, yeah, yeah. so in a way that kind of uh, forces me to get to know the people there uh, or make friends and get to know the culture there. So, but as a student, I guess studying there, uh, I do have, uh, we do get a lot more liberty in terms of what we want to explore. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there, uh, I, we are not narrow, uh, being shot down, well, not being narrowed down to certain ideology. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were kind of free to express uh, what we were, uh, what we wanted. And of course, there are also subjects. Um, I think this is what I find interesting in at least in the American-based program is mm. that you know even though your course is four years, it's not just about uh, studying all the subject that is related to a course, but you can actually choose electives throughout the years, mm. uh, things that you are interested in. That so mm. when I was there, you know, I, I took up different electives like um, classes. Uh, subjects with subject on arts and politics, mm. uh, history of cinema, uh, screen mm. printing, or even the class on Simpsons and Sims, you know, totally unrelated to what I was mm. studying. Mm. But it was just kind of fun, like it kind of give you a different perspective on perhaps you can actually, you know, use ideas that you learn from other classes and mm. apply it to 
to your to your uh, your studio. So it was definitely um, different. And but when I was in architecture uh, in school, mm. in architecture school, uh, I didn't have a life mm. because mm. you guys say you had it tough, but I think I may have it worse. But yeah, yeah. It wasn't. It was. It was because you know of the working and the studying thing. So you know, like I was working during the day, and I have to deal with politics in the office and mm. deadlines and and mm. in in the office, mm. and then I also have to deal with classes and exams and mm. studio projects in school. Mm. So so throughout that seven years, uh, I mean, like the friends that I met up with most would probably would have to be my colleagues and um, that I've worked with. Mm. Uh, school friends, you know, I'll see them like uh, once in a while. Mm. Uh, but I do have good good school friends. But I think majority of my time would be spending it with uh, with uh, the, my colleagues, which is actually good in mm. a way because uh, they most of them have graduated from school. Mm. So uh, so that gives me a different perspective. And most of uh, the the students in our school are. Are in the professional world, so so mm. our perspective is very different from from let's say a, a student that has not worked before and is just focused on the academic. Mm. So mm. the topic that you discuss or, or things that you see is is really uh, an eye opener, and you can actually uh, and the point of that school was actually to bring that conversation you have mm. in work and bringing it into the academic world. Mm-hmm. So, so that was uh, something that I thought, you know, was uh, interesting. I, I agree with you saying that when it comes to a so-called foreign land, and then you just met with different kind of people, and since you brought up the content of the conversation with friends or colleague, it will be totally different from your classmate, for example. I think I think it makes sense for me to quote. Um, Bernard Rudowski at this point is like we have to go out to know more so that you can understand your own country things. For example, you can you once you go to overseas, then you can see from different perspective on Malaysia things or Malaysia culture. Right. For example, yeah, right. And I'm pretty sure that at that point of time, maybe those who study abroad to US is way lesser than UK. I think. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So. Um, in 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 Dian Sajik's book on uh, Foster, he thinks mm-hmm. that Foster can actually stay in America to develop his career. Um, he actually have a base of you know network or um understanding with the industry. So I wonder why not you try to work in U.S. instead? Why 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 did you come back? Oh, um, uh, I have been working in the U.S. Right. Uh, Uh, and I've been working there for about seven, no, actually more than seven years. Uh, mm. About eight, eight to nine years. Right. Uh, so even though it, it may not sound long, uh, I guess uh, I, it felt long to me. Mm, mm. And Boston is a very small city. Mm. Everyone knows everyone. Uh, the industry is very small. Mm. Uh, you know. You know. I was almost in a way. I was doing my studies. I was trying to graduate, and it was at a point where you know I felt like oh, this must be there must be more than you know what is out, what is here in Boston. You know, mm. is this what you know is this what architecture can offer? Mm. So I was at that 
you know, almost at that breaking point. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that uh, is relatable to some of you guys right now actually is mm -hmm. that there was also an economic crisis mm -hmm. in in late 2010, mm -hmm. uh, 2009 in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So it was also uh, a lot of companies were not doing well, and then when recession hits, usually the building and construction industry is the first one to, mm. to be affected. Mm. So, you know, I was definitely affected, and, you know, at that point, I also thought, okay, you know, why not just take this as an opportunity? I think Asia seems like uh, a good place to go back to mm. because, you know, I spend a big chunk of my adulthood in the U.S., mm. you know, but I've never really spent uh, my time in, in Malaysia, mm. so that's where I, there's just a couple reasons why I actually decided to go back to Malaysia, mm. and I also thought, you know, there was more opportunity at that time mm. uh, for me to explore mm -hmm. what they have in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I, I thought maybe, you know, time, time change, but I think it's another perspective to look at Asian context in um, let's talk about not just about culture or heritage or, you know, the value of it. But apart from that, we should look at the potential because I think, I think Rem Kuhas did mention that should re-looking at Asian context as another future in a way that we shouldn't put too much focus or, you know, putting too much lights or stars works or on, on, on Western countries, you know. So I think... It should. It, it is a good balance that we should now looking back at another realm that or, or continents that we can look at. There's a lot of great potentials that uh, you, you you did mention. That's why I, I think probably that's why you you looking that or oh, coming back to Asia to focus on things like for example, what you are doing now as a lecturer. And another thing that I I think it must be very tough that for you at that point of time you have to work and study also because. Um, I can imagine that because I, I read through the book saying that Paul, last time Paul Rudolph was a tutor for Foster and Richard Rogers and the time wasn't easy that you have to, apart from doing a good quality works and then you have to produce a lot of things. And then, and then after you work for quite some time in US and then you come back um, to Malaysia, did you work anymore? Yes, uh, yes, I did. But... Um... Yes, I did. I, I came back, uh, tried to have a few months mm. of relaxation, but mm. I did apply straight into uh, uh, the few. Uh, I did got an offer pretty quickly, uh, So, but I didn't like that first firm. Mm. So I just changed to a couple other mm. firms later. Mm. But yeah, I, I worked uh, a few years before uh, going into lecturing uh, into tailors uh, but but like you say what you said earlier you know you're like absolutely right because uh, there are a lot of opportunity opportunities uh, and uh, in, in the Asian context especially in this region and when I was uh, in the US I honestly I didn't study any there was not any Asian apart from like you know like in China or India there was mm. not no no subject or topic on 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 the Southeast Asian mm. architectural context mm. uh, so you know I actually learned a lot more I definitely learned a lot more uh, being back here because I was uh, 
just not from a student's point of view, but from from um, from the subjects that you guys are taking, and mm. also you know uh, working with the environment here. So that was uh, also something that I actually had to to learn, uh, relearn, mm. and learn uh, when I came back, mm. because uh, all these uh, things like. Uh, Toilets that needs to be ventilated mm. uh, wasn't taught, you know. Like when in the U.S., you could have a toilet in the middle of the house, mm-hmm. just as long as you have mechanical ventilation. Mm. But mechanical ventilation isn't isn't something that you know the authorities uh, prefer here. Mm. So so when you're designing something like that, you know mm. you gotta look in the in in that kind of context. So there was definitely some learning curve mm. uh, coming back here. In Malaysia, and then and then, which later you, um, involved into academic industry in architecture. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So. Yes. So. I, yeah. So, I I think to to come to that, I think it was kind of not out of the blue. Uh. Uh. It was also I was wait I was about five 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 or six years into work. Mm. And I was kind of getting bored. Mm. It wasn't very exciting. Uh, mm. I mean, I like the experience. I I was involved with uh, some high-rise projects. I went to site uh, doing all this stuff, but mm. uh, it was not very interesting. So a friend of mine, uh, uh, Nick, he told me, you know, if I'm interested in in taking up an academic uh, lecturing, mm. so so that's when I decided. Okay, sure. Why not? Let's try it and see mm. how it goes. Mm-mm-mm. Since then, you 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 are like so, yeah. become yeah you you became a lecturer in Taylor's. Um, I wonder what is the first module that you you've been assigned. My first module in that in that in that in that, my first module was actually um, architecture portfolio. Ah, okay. So it's uh, very related. That, yeah, in a way. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so because my. First year when I was part time, I was actually still working with the firm, so I could only take like uh, one one day plus mm. off, so I couldn't take a lot of time off. Mm. Uh, but they also had uh, they needed someone, I guess, for that mm. module. So so yeah, uh, my first module was the portfolio, mm. which later developed into more modules like, for example, studio or food and culture. Yeah, so history. so that eventually yeah, so that eventually went to the. Uh, Design module and then on the other elective and history mm, module. Mm, yeah. mm. I I had a lot of fun. I I not sure about other students, but I had a lot of fun. Absolute a lot of uh, <laughs> um interest in food and culture, for example, because I think I I am I think the module wasn't really introduced by yourself, right? It's it's been you know introduced by the school. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. So I but I like the way how. Your approach is much more on introducing like documentaries that allow the students to understand in a deeper way of understanding food and culture through very intangible ways. Because I think a lot of time when we looking at architecture, we take it too serious, and we are forgetting the tactility of art in that case. So I wonder how does that. Comes to your mind when it comes to you know I wanted to teach these students and allow them to be more motivated in that. 
I think that that module was really just a fun module. I don't think it was meant to be too serious. Mm. Uh, so in a way, uh, because it wasn't so serious that uh, when students are in there, they would want to enjoy and and explore. Mm. And because we are the module kind of pushes you guys out to explore the food and culture of, of certain area mm. uh, that I selected. Mm. Uh, so it kind of gives you guys uh, opportunity uh, to to just have fun in a way uh, mm. because uh, because it's food and culture. So you guys have to eat and explore whatever food it's being offered there. Mm. So you guys have to eat anyway, right? So why not just get together as a group and and, and then just go out to to wherever you guys have to go and then um, understand it but also going there just not eating but mm. really understand you know how how our sort of how we consume uh, culturally how do we get our food where do we get our food so there are a lot of interesting uh, like I said intangible aspects that you got to look at mm. because uh, these are really things that you don't see because you we see it every day but you don't really observe it mm. in a way and to understand and study this is actually part of what um, uh, our everyday life is and culturally it's it's something that is only uh, in that specific region or context and it's different from anywhere else but we don't really see it because we take things for granted mm. most of the time, mm. and it's just something that we do every day. It's very sort of common uh, things. That, so, what's the big deal of it? You know, people would ask. Mm. But you know, once you try to observe it, but uh, these smaller things are actually the one that um, de depict how we actually, you know, live in our space. Or if you want to bring into an architectural context, you know, how we actually uh, create the space that that uh, we get our food or how we create spaces that we prepare our food um, so mm -hmm. so yeah that's sort of like an, um, a thing and then the other thing you know that uh, I don't know if anyone of, of you would notice is actually in all these new modern um, houses that is being built here in Malaysia mm -hmm. you have two kitchens mm -hmm. where in the world would you ever see two kitchens what's a wet and dry kitchen mm -hmm. Apart from uh, Singapore and and, and so there are no ways that you know you know that you would see that. But you know in a way also like why do we need to have two kitchens mm. anyway? Mm. You know how did that sort of uh, came in? Because I think I would say I guess that's also an interesting subject to to explore because I think in the in the eighties or back then I think sixties there was no such thing as dry or wet. There was mm. just a kitchen and then maybe a yard outside, mm -hmm. but there was so that that is that evolution of how we uh, how if you look at you know how we prepare our food traditionally until uh, more recently. So those those architectural spaces and changes that's mm -hmm. a fascinating subject to study actually. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, I think it was just really mainly to have fun and then really really see our world. Yeah, recently I just finished uh, reading Peter Zumto's at Atmospheres. That I think I it will be extremely helpful at at that point of time. If let's say I can finish it, uh, before the assignment, then it will be a lot of uh knowledge on that because I think too many I would say invisible things that we didn't notice, and 
it just felt so good when if let's mm-hmm. say you can appreciate those little things in your daily life it's just that you don't cherish it much at the at a certain time but once mm-hmm. you understand the reason then there will be mm-hmm. a lot of meaningful um and 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 mm-hmm. apart from being lecturer you involve in a lot of so-called social endeavors like yeah. when we're talking about epic or vernador so you 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 are first involved in epic right before vernador yes yes mm. uh yes epic came first uh and i found out about epic in 2016 i think 2016 uh mm. through actually one of your classmates uh daniel mm. uh so he posted on 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 uh, i think the the facebook group that they wanted they were looking for volunteers to build uh so yeah so that was my so that was how i found out about epic beginning mm. so the first project that you've been involving is uh, orang asli houses is it yes so so 2016 uh, they were building a lot of houses uh, for the kelantan uh, area this was not the first time but the second time in mm. guamusang uh, so so they split up a few weekends so i was in i think with the second weekend uh, in that build uh, so the build is for those who don't know uh, epic builds uh, Epic homes uh, and communities that, uh, have this initiative that build houses for the marginalized community, and here is here we have the Orang Asli mm. in uh, community. So so it takes three days to to build a house uh, with volunteers, and these volunteers have no construction uh, or design background at all. Mm. They are mainly from various different uh, various background uh, ranging from you know like a insurance agent to be an administrator or doctor mm. uh, so so you know when i first heard of it you know i didn't know what to expect i was mm. really just curious uh, so that was the main thing that drove drove me to participate in this build mm. uh, was just out of curiosity you know how could they build three days uh, how mm. could they build a home in three days mm. uh, so But having built it, uh, having experienced the build, is actually just more than building because more than just physical building, but also building a community, a community mm. of people where you we share common interests and in, in uh, first of course in in helping out uh, the marginalized community, but you know it's also making friends with the the orang asli community or mm. whoever we're building it for mm. because um and i also like um there are their philosophy behind the bill mm. and and the what they do uh in the organization because uh all these houses are through a paid forward program and when we're building the homeowners actually build with them we are We're not just giving handouts because uh, mm. Epic don't believe in giving handouts. Mm. Uh, so when we see them build and the homeowner building and we're building together, so it sort of kind of empowers them that you know that um, that they can uh, develop and gain new knowledge, new friends. Mm. Uh, so uh, so it was just really refreshing to see uh, that being uh, happening in in Malaysia. Mm. So that was how I got into Epic. Mm. Uh, so yeah, so uh, since 
2016, and I'm still volunteering with them. Uh, um, so I also help with some workshops and, and other training programs. So, mm. so yeah, that, that three days uh, in 2016 have become a four years kind of journey with mm. Epic. Mm. I, I admire the fact that um, Epic is not just building houses, but it is building a capacity or building a certain, uh, you know, a certain potential for the homes owner, for example, to to be more appreciative or to be more collaborative with people around them and to, you know, when, when they receive helps like like this and they don't just giving you or, or they get getting totally for free. They, they they involve as well. So that's the thing I learned when um, I was involved in Orang Asli designing competition as well. I think you um, you were there for um, for yeah. building two mm-hmm. show house, I would say, from the winning entry and mm, prototype. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So apart apart from that, you I I saw you around with uh other projects like Millennium Park at Subang as well and and then and then you involved into another I would say like a party like Vernadoc so I wonder what is your role in Vernadoc uh so starting with uh, Millennium Park Millennium Park was uh something that Epic wanted to explore and I think at that time they had the support of the uh, not MP but uh Hannah Yeo I think mm. uh, I, mm. Forgot what her role was in uh, MP of Subang, I think. Mm. Anyway, uh, so they wanted to develop something similar, like a, a community uh, building, and and in in that park, similar to what we were doing with the Orang Asli. Mm. But that was a, a very quick sort of project. Uh, I'm not sure what the status of that is, mm. but um, so that was epic trying to venture into an urban context, mm. uh, and. So yeah, I think they're still sort of working on, on a few projects um, uh, within the urban context. Mm. Uh, but so, and then going into Wernerdog, uh, Wernerdog was, I found out about Wernerdog and uh, through, uh, through a friend in Epic, he introduced me to, to Sung, who is a fanatic of Wernerdog. Mm. Uh, so, uh, so he and I met uh, in May, 2017, and I w- didn't know what Werner Dog was at that time, of mm. course. Uh, so I met up with him and and wanted to find out more. So what is Werner Dog? So and basically the Werner Dog uh, is short for Vernacular Documentation, mm. and it started in Finland by a Finnish architect called Marku Matia. Mm. So. Uh, in Finland, it is a tradition for architecture students to document vernacular architecture during their first year of architectural studies. Very mm. similar to what you guys are doing mm. uh, for measure drawing. Mm. Uh, so Finland have been doing this for hundreds of years, uh, and it's a practice, is an ongoing practice uh, and tradition that still happens uh, to this day. Mm. Uh, so Marku or Marke, as we call him by his nickname, um, is and. Uh, is an active member of the ICOMOS-CF committee, which deals with uh, vernacular architecture. Mm. So in 2004, they had a meeting in Japan, mm. and he mentioned that he wasn't aware of anyone documenting uh, vernacular architecture mm. and wanted to find out you know, if anyone was interested to, to document it. Mm. So at that point, at that moment, in that meeting, uh, Professor Sujit 
uh, from Thailand. Mm. Uh, her, in Thai, they have a lot of nicknames. So her nickname is actually uh, Tuk, or we call her Ajan Tuk, uh, so Teacher Tuk. Mm. Uh, so she jumped right in and said she was very interested. And basically, so she joined a camp in Finland uh, at that time. So that, that was uh, so 2005. So anyway, uh, long story short, mm. they got together, and then Tyler have been very active in 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 uh, pushing in their home country. Mm. So they've been doing this since 2007, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Uh, so more than 13 years now. Mm. Uh, so how I got roped into it was with Sung. Uh, he he is not an architect, so he works for a company that distributes architectural materials from mm. Thailand, uh, and he supplies uh, fiber cement board uh, under the name of Shara for for Epic at that time when I met him. Mm. Uh, so because of his business with Thailand, he goes to Thailand almost every year, very often, and every year in the architectural expo, uh, the first time he went, he saw Vernodoc. Uh, drawings being exhibited outside the expo mm. and he was fascinated of course with the drawings and basically you know started to fall in love with it mm. and because he's been doing going back and forth for eight years so so back and forth back and forth eight years you know um, he wanted to to see if he could bring this concept into Malaysia so he was really interested to bring this but unfortunately I guess no one really bothered with him or mm. no one seems to be interested. That's what he told me. Mm. And when I met him, uh, I was like, okay, great. Uh, that's interesting, but we'll see what we can do uh, in Malaysia and see what I could help him. Uh, because at that time, you know, I wasn't sh too sure. I, I saw the drawings and I was like, are you sure it's, it's, it can be done in two weeks? You know, what <laughs> sort of uh, cult is this? Uh, anyway, uh, so... So it was like, okay, let's see what what we can do. And then, so that year uh, in November, uh, twenty seventeen, Phuket had their first camp. Mm. Uh, so I was invited to join, and then, like Epic, you know, I was very curious. You know, who wasn't like when they told me that? Like, oh, everything is done in two weeks. You know, mm -hmm. uh, so you can definitely draw this out. Mm. And I, I. I went and really experienced that two weeks, mm. but of course it was in Phuket, so it kind of have a, a nice environment. But mm. it was most of us were there for their first time. There were I think about twelve of us. I don't mm. exactly remember the number, but there were a few international uh, participants from like Bangla uh, uh, India, uh, Bhutan, and Serbia mm. and Cambodia. Mm. Uh, so. When we were finishing up like our first week, we were basically telling each other mm. what did we sign up for in a way. So it was mm. it was really funny to think back, you know, like without knowing you join in and then but when you join in you're like, Oh, it's so frustrating, why are we taking forever? Mm. But then at the end of the two weeks, uh you there's a sense of fulfillment, like, you know, you accomplish thing and this is you produce this beautiful drawing. Uh, and you're just so happy about it. So, so that that fulfillment kind of uh, uh, deem it worth it. Like mm. you know, it's really worth it going through it for the two weeks. Mm. Mm. So yeah, so so that's yeah, my 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 take on Winnerdog. And my role uh, right now is that I help Song with the Winnerdog Malaysia 
So we have since 2017 of that November, mm. uh, I've participated in 10 camps, 10 mm. different camps. Mm. So of course Phuket was first, and then we had the Malaysian uh, camp in Sungai Buloh, mm. and then the third one I went to was in Bali in Pingan, and then after that flew to Bangkok, uh, Bangkok back to Malaysia in Kuang, which we documented a, a Chinese uh, shop house, mm. and then. I flew to Italy in Monte Brandone, so for uh, for Werner out there, and then back to Bali in Padawa, and then from Bali I went to China in Pingyao. So that was my eighth camp, mm. and then from Pingyao went to Cambodia mm. uh, in New Phnom Penh. It's a small village called Kampong Tralak, mm. and then recently in January we had our Third camp, third Malaysian camp in Taiping. Right. So this was a collaboration with UCSI University students. Mm. So my role there and now is basically to teach and guide uh, new people through the camp. Mm. So I'll manage the camp uh, because the camp is two weeks, and Song is actually uh, he works, of course. Mm. <laughs> Unlike me, who has so much free time. No, actually, no. But uh, it just I do it when whenever I'm free. Mm. Uh, so uh, so because I have to. What's when you're in the camp? You need to be there. You need to in, invest uh, two weeks of your time. Mm. Uh, because when we document, we document for two weeks straight. Uh, mm. The first week we do it at the house, uh, at the building, whatever, and we draw and document things straight onto mm. the paper mm. with pencil first. Mm. Uh, so you need that commitment of uh, of that first week, and then the second week after uh, we bring the drawing to a studio or wherever we we ink it, mm. you need another another week to finish the drawing because this is where we start to render. We put in materials, uh, we put in uh, all the other smaller information that we didn't have time to to document. Mm. So that, so that that is the second week where we uh, sort of document that project mm, mm, mm. so apart like, yeah. like you said apart from <coughs> documenting the vernacular architecture in uh, different places for example that you're saying that Vernador brings you around the world um, to record the houses and I think those are the drawings that frozen in time in a way that you capture the architecture at that point of time it's not like you're trying to imagine what it looks like when it's first built or, or, or 20 years before you record it. So it's like most of the time the drawings are recording at the moment when you reach the place. So I, I, I wonder that is there any other assignments being brought up like for example like a report or like a storyline being captured besides having like a drawings? Because I think I, I, I saw a lot of things that most of it are inked, um, hand-drawn drawings. But I wonder, is there any like a document or report that you know, like explain the background of the certain buildings or a place? So, so yeah, uh, no. So the the Bernadot drawings are all manually done, mm. and so you're right, actually. So we document um, what we see on that day that we document. Mm. Uh, so there is no final report. The format of the camp is for the first week, you do the pencil and, and measurements, then you ink it in the second week, 
And then in the last day of the second week, we have a seminar or one day uh, seminar with the public of that community uh, wherever we draw. So we showcase our drawings, the finished product in, in let's say, a village or wherever we draw it. So we'll showcase it there. So that actually is kind of like the report because the drawings that we do is not a technical drawing. We are not conservation architects, uh, basically. Uh, we, we are not practicing the, the art of conserving. Though how we're doing it is we are producing these drawings so that uh, for the general public, for, for the layman mm. and the owner, for anyone who has no architectural background. Mm. Uh, so that's why the building, uh, the drawings that we do uh, has that very artistic quality uh, to it that mm. anyone who reads a drawing can immediately understand. Mm. But the main point of the drawing is is really for the homeowners or the, the building owners to actually see that there is a beauty, there is uh, there is a good quality and, and and beauty in the vernacular architecture that you live in. Mm. You know, it is not building because most of the buildings or vernacular architecture buildings that we document are usually very old and and uh, they're interesting they're very very uh, well built but you know just because that is lived in it's really just uh, uh, being used uh, so that has a rustic quality but it's also the only one in the world because when we document it especially if we document a house, a live-in house that mm. the owner had been using, living in there for like uh, many, many years, mm. so we try to to capture only uh, details that you know exist in that house, in particular, mm. or, or maybe a blemish or a scar in that house that when the owner sees it, uh, they would immediately uh, their memories get triggered. Like, mm. okay, I recognize that, mm. and it was very similar to something that we did in in Klong, where passerby were asking, you know, why are we documenting? What's the point of documenting it? Mm. And and but then when they see the drawing, they immediately brought they it brought back memories that you know I recognize this place. This is where you know the the doctor uh, you know uh, you know I was visited when I was young. You know this is uh, this is exactly how it kind of uh, was. Mm. So. So those are you know things that we want to 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 document. So it's not like a a, a very sort of academic report. Mm. We do we will eventually publish it. Uh, we do always have a publication for any when we finish a camp. But Malaysia, we are actually kind of collecting uh, data before we, we we come up with a publication. Mm. But remember that those are so we serve the community first not necessarily the, the designers or the architects. Uh, it's really the, the, the homeowners, the public. Since you are talking about vernacular architecture, it's more of like a target for Vernadoc to document or record. But I think in, in Vernadoc in Malaysia, it went beyond uh, houses and then you, you, you guys go to Taiping Market or even go to Sung, uh, Sungai Buloh Leprosy Centre. So, um, personally, I, I'm really interested in that project because I, I went there, I visited that place before, and I think that it contains a lot of history. And, of course, I mean, the center itself is not just 
uh, consists of houses. It, it has a lot of typology as well. It's like a small city. It has um, hospital, prayer halls, market, uh, hospital, domes, and so on and so forth. So I wonder how was your experience for when you approached to, to that project? Um, yeah. Uh, okay, so I, I know about uh, this place when I was very young, uh, when I was little. Uh, we were told about this, but you know, it was just some place that you didn't want to go because mm. uh, at that time there was still a stigma on, on, on leprosy, on the disease, and the patients that you know you shouldn't go there and touch, you know, whatever. Mm. But so when I arrived uh, in in, uh, in two years ago, uh, for my first time, you know, I was very surprised with uh, the beauty that it has to offer. You know, mm. the environment there is very fresh. You know, how the hospital was built, the history you got to know about. You know, how they were developing it, and how the li patients were living in that settlement were treated with uh, with dignity. And going back to what you said earlier, so there are actually not houses there. Those houses that you see are actually the patients' ward. Mm. This is where the patients uh, were living. So because it was designed in a way that it was very open uh, because back then, you know, people with leprosy were not treated with uh, dignity at all and they were confined in very uh, small spaces with no ventilation uh, and uh, no space to run around. So they were just being treated very badly. Mm. So this... Uh, gosh, I I don't know his head name on top of my head now, but uh, this doctor came and and came up with a design that you know let's build a, a, a city a, a, a township uh, where it's, uh, with this concept of open spaces uh, mm -hmm. basically good airflow uh, uh, we because maybe because uh, perhaps that was a, a a good thing for for treating disease as well because if you're being confined to small unventilated spaces you know the viruses in the air just get trapped mm. uh, trapped in the air mm. uh, so you know coming to a grounds where you have natural lighting you know well ventilated rooms you know it was also very encouraging to see and also there was also a very strong sense of community because people who live there the patients who live there mm. were very closely uh, connected and they help each other a lot mm. uh, so which is a very beautiful place to see to, mm. to be in so when we were there for a week, uh, we were documenting two houses, two buildings actually, not uh, houses, mm -hmm. two buildings in a compound. One which which is a wooden type uh, uh, patient ward, mm -hmm. uh, so which was occupied by Auntie Aohua, who is a leprosy patient herself. So she mm -hmm. still lives there, mm -hmm. and uh, so the team members of volunteer who were documenting there, you know, got to know her really really well, and they just had a great great time. With her because it was a home, and then she would just ask them, you know, have you guys eaten? You know, had some fruits mm -hmm. and drinks. Mm -hmm. And she was really, very uh, being hospitable and friendly. Uh, so much so that you know, at the end of the week, uh, a lot of us was very sad to to leave, and we didn't want to leave. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was this very strong connection with with Auntie Ahua, and and you know, when you're there and you get to know the people who live there, mm -hmm. you you really tend to understand um, the, the, the spaces and better and then when we are drawing it uh, we try to put in those emotion and, and, and feeling and connection and relationship that we get uh, into the drawing mm. uh, because uh, whenever we draw uh, I know that for when I draw if I'm not feeling it my drawings looks uh, shit it looks horrible mm. but when I'm in that mood I, I actually have more patience and 
and the lines are more uh, expressive and, and more beautiful compared to when I'm not in really in that mood. So when we draw, we try to also relate that uh, uh, emotion and, and into the drawing. Mm, mm, mm. I think I think apart from the history or the meaning behind those architecture, I think what's beautiful is that how those things aging well in, in a certain context because I, I, I don't think um, the houses that I mentioned are those like the at the front, like the, the one facing the courtyards or the one near to the uh, halls or event halls or the you know gathering place. But I think those little cottages at the back, I think those are houses. Um, those small houses when people were so-called like quarantined inside. And I think it's rather small. It's just once you go in, is what you get is living room and bedroom at, at one glance. When you're going back at further, it will be like a kitchen and the toilet will be separate. I think what's the beauty is that is how does it dwells very well with the context like nature overtakings over it. I mean, of course, back then maybe it wasn't looks like that, but I think at this point <laughs> of time, now you know it just you you see plants growing over and then you see the roof is covered with greens algae or, or or like creepers or whatnot. I think those are really really beautiful. Um, to conclude that, I think what you are doing now is a lot of um relevant to what we need at this point of time in a way that you are promoting the events or the value of architecture. It's not about physical architecture thing, but it's about the hidden message that you're trying to convey or you're trying to explore. So I wonder in that point of time, like like Vernadoc, for example, that you are trying to convey the idea of uh, architectural cons uh, conservation like that because it's not that you're trying to propose something new, but it's to promote something that is already there. It's just that people just forget. And same goes to Epic as well. It's, it's like the sense of community is not there until you 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 know you guys go there and study again and mm. um excavate again so i think mm -hmm. that really uh, meaningful and i think you did mention that when you look at the student works for example and then you feel that when it comes to semester 6 or semester 5 when things getting more rigid i would say it's not boring mm -hmm. it's just getting more realistic or practical mm -hmm. and you yeah. find it that things getting more complicated and and we are losing that that, that sense of art or losing that sense of humanity so mm -hmm. before we close this i i would like to ask if you can share what is your point of view i think uh humanity is very important as a subject i think all everyone should learn to understand our civilization uh, as human beings, uh, and not just uh, focus so much on, you know, the technical parts of, of certain things, or like you know, architecture. I'm just bringing architecture as an example because uh, when you're being so practical and pragmatic, you lose, as like you say, you lose that quality of of um, of uh, lose that human touch. I guess lose that human touch to it because you know if we if if we're if we want to be practical we could just ask engineers to design it mm -hmm. right design a building you know no, no offense to all the engineers out there mm -hmm. but you know like 
so you need to have that balance between uh, of theory and practical in architecture. And in order to understand theory, sometimes you cannot be so literal literal on on certain things. So you got to inject a bit of that, I wouldn't say artistic, mm. a bit of that humane uh, quality to it. Uh, so goes back to you know what Wernerdal uh, is doing also is that you know when we're doing it we're doing all these drawings manually. Mm. Uh, no one uses a technical pen nowadays. Uh, mm. For those who uh, who uses or the old school ones are probably like the one that is only using it. But nowadays a lot of them don't use the technical pen. But so it's a way also to preserve that tradition of 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 what we as architect used to. The tools that we use, uh, because when we do measurements, when we do drawings, uh, everything is manual. We try not to rely too much on technology. Mm. So, so, but because what we're doing is uh, manual, mm. of course there will be mistakes. Mm. And a lot of students and people who do it for the first time, it's very afraid. I was afraid when I was doing it my first time because, mm. like, you know, when I start inking it, okay, what I cannot erase it. Right? Mm. I, can, I can scratch it, but you cannot scratch it too much. Mm. So, mm. so, but for me, after going through all these so many different camps, you know, how I, I tell them it's, it's okay to make a mistake because we're human after all. We're mm. not machines. Mm. Uh, so if a drawing that is, you know, produced so beautiful and so technical that it feels like a mass-produced uh, piece of print that I can print out hundreds and thousands of times, mm. you know, where is that? Uh, emotion behind it. Where is that uh, the error, that the human touch that we want to see in that drawing? And that's mm -hmm. why when you see our drawings, uh, at first glance it will look very technical. It will look like it was done by a machine. But as you go further, there's actually uh, a quality that you know no one else can produce except for the artists mm -hmm. in that drawing. And that's what uh, we want to try to achieve. Same for architecture. When you're doing architectural pieces, you know, like uh, for like if you talk about Zoomtor, you know, why is Zoomtor's uh, architecture so 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 uh, beautiful and being appreciated by so many people? Because mm. it has its own set of quality compared mm. to a building that is done by Kuhas. Mm, mm, it's mm. totally completely different, mm. right? Each and every one. So so yeah, it, I think that is the 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 balance is we need to have that balance of you know using technology and you know but also finding the back the human touch when mm. we're designing mm, mm, mm. i i i really appreciate the points that you 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 mentioned just now i think um it hits a lot to me because i think not everyone would would agree with this because in the first podcast, mm -hmm. I, as I discussed with Amos, he might he might not agree about this. Yeah. He might he might he <laughs> might do something. Um, I, w I I won't say something wrong, but it's just different different preference over how they yeah. wanted to design things. And I understand that how you come so far that from from doing like high rises and then down to recording those small houses. Um, I won't say it's not ambitious, but. It is ambitious in both cases, but it's just that when you're doing a smaller things or something more lower profile, I would say, or humble mm -hmm. things that mm -hmm. really change uh, like, a, like a huge spectrum that can see from your career journey, for example, because mm -hmm. I see like you were you, you was working like in a probably like huge project and then now you're just jumping into another universe, I would say. It's like mm -hmm. it's totally 
different from what you would practice. Um, yeah. So I I wonder that if you are thinking to have like a small clubs or NGOs that to bring students to do these things together. I mean, of course, you've been doing this along with like Vernadoc with UCSI as well. But I wonder if you wanted to create like a community that you know when people can come come together and have a tour around. You know, because I I think you are very very knowledgeable with uh, in this industry. So I wonder if you keen to do this in future. I I would say no. I uh, I think uh, there are certain uh, definitely opportunities, and I have also talked to some students, uh, not from Taylor's actually from UCSI, mm -hmm. uh, just uh, other mutual friends that you know there. Some of them are actually looking to have uh, you know clubs, uh, whatever discussion. I think sometimes that's also helpful because I think that's I feel like a lot of you guys you are very focused on all these assignments that you have mm. but you don't take the time to actually discuss about architecture mm. really really talk about architecture and not just you don't have to talk about architecture but you know the community mm. or whatever the design world or the built environment and yeah I think for sure that would be something you know uh, interested to 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 do uh, like I say I wouldn't say no yet uh, mm. but uh, we're also planning something with Wernadog so uh, so hopefully fingers crossed we can you know set up uh, something similar or something an outlet for for students and uh, interested parties mm. to 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 come together mm. yeah okay thank you very much Nicholas and before we end this, would you like to share any things like, for example, like social media or any advice would you like to give to our audience? Yeah, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so if you guys are interested with uh, Wernerdog, we have a Facebook page called Wernerdog Malaysia. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, check that out. Uh, we are on social media. Uh, and if you're interested in any of the camps and future camps, that's where you can get our information on. Mm -hmm. uh, and... I think my advice to students right now, seeing that we are all uh, confined within our, our home, I guess it's time where we can actually reflect on on what we're doing, on how we could uh, uh, take this opportunity and kind of slow down a bit, mm. right? Slow mm. down, and not everything is uh, about fast, mm. uh, rapid development but mm. I think as as human beings as uh, we really do need to slow down and then just enjoy the little things that we have uh, in front of us and the same goes for architecture and only then you can create I think something that is more meaningful thank you so much I, I really appreciate your thank sharing and hey. I think yeah I think thank it, you it's my pleasure to be here thank <laughs> you for having me <laughs> yeah yeah you know I have been yeah, I have, I've been thinking a lot. Like, hesitate. Should I invite some like like professional or, or tutors to come and join this <laughs> podcast? <laughs> but I, I really well, thanks thanks a lot for for joining us. Yeah, thank thanks for having me, Gary. Uh, I hope to see you soon. Yeah, definitely. Okay. We'll see you soon.